Well, tonight, if you would, turn back with me to 2 Kings. It's been a few weeks since we uh, left off. We had one Sunday evening where we didn't have a worship service. We had another Sunday evening. We joined with our brothers and sisters in Christ at Grace and Surfside Presbyterian Churches. And so, therefore, coming to 2 Kings chapter 7, I hate to do it, but I really must bring you back to the desperation of the Israelite people in this chapter in Samaria. Though God put a stop to raiding parties from Syria who would come in inflicting damage in the Israelite villages and countryside, yet the king of Assyria still of Syria still hated the people of Israel and he besieged the capital Samaria in order to starve them out. War back then was messy, it was not quick, it was not by missiles and gunfire and gunpowder and all those things. It was often by the slow process of surrounding by force, seeking to starve a city. Times were so desperate, according to the earlier portions of chapter 6 and 7, that the curses of God for unbelief and disobedience prophesied in the law made the parents of Samaria reduced to the cannibalizing of their own children. Terrible, terrible circumstances. But God, however, promised deliverance. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, he even said the very next day things will be different. And this was the promise of God for deliverance for the people of Israel in Samaria in one day. Therefore, we pick up the narrative at verse 3. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, 
When they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of the servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan. And behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God said when the king came down to him. For when the men of God had said to the king, Two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a seah of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. We consider this reading of God's word. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, grant us from this your text of reverence for your character and for your word. Help us, Lord, to hear it and to understand it by the power of your spirit, that you would open our ears and our hearts. Help us, Lord, to apply the truths contained therein, that we might glorify you in the day of visitation. We pray in Jesus' name. One of the declining moral morass of today's society in our own country, we have reverted back to some base practices of old. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. One of those vices is common gambling. 100 years ago today, or 100 years ago, not necessarily this very day, but 100 years ago, gamblers involved in sporting activities if convicted, would be given a lifetime ban from the sport and might be arrested and thrown in prison. Today, however, it is common for the live coverage of a sporting event to give constantly updated statistics on the likelihood of a team either prevailing or losing in a contest. In fact, if you look at certain outlets, you might see a percentage. This is the percentage of the odds of their winning or losing. And on the one hand, I think even the most casual fan can tell such things by simply looking at the score and watching the game. On the other hand, I think the bookies here in a contest like this in Samaria with Syria surrounding the city would have the odds at about 99.9% that the Syrians would win. The hordes of the surrounding Syrian army truly were starving the people of Samaria to death. We looked in the earlier part of this how they were eating the, the worst meat, donkey's heads. They were also looking at even the most base and terrible things we can possibly imagine, parents even seeking to get meat from their own children. And the things 
of Samaria were completely hopeless. But this is the point, isn't it? Will God's word and promises prevail in times of hopelessness and desperation? You see, this passage, as much as any other in Scripture, reminds us that God's word will stand. It stands through supernatural intervention. It stands despite the unbelief of some of God's people. And it stands even in all of its smallest, minutest details. God's word stands. Here's the situation. You know it. The Syrians have a great army. They've surrounded the city. They're starving the people out. This is what besieging means. This is what warfare was like in those days. It was a terrible situation. There was no hope. As the king traversed from one end of the city to the other, he had individuals like a woman uh, described in chapter 6 who said, hey, help us. We ate my child. My friend who said that they would have their child available, she's made it hidden so that we can't do it, make her give her child to us that we might survive. This is the situation. Elisha, however, in verses 1 and 2 said, the Lord says this tomorrow, that it will be a new day. The cost of provisions will be much cheaper. The Lord himself shall do this thing tomorrow. You know, looking at this from an earthly and humanly perspective, you can see why the people would doubt the words of Elisha. But the irony here in this story that begins with verse 3 is this. The story turns the most unlikeliest of people. Four lepers. These lepers weren't even allowed inside the city. And they were still outside the city, starving to death outside the gates, caught between the city where they were not permitted to go because they were considered unclean and outcasts from the society, and caught, on the other hand, between the camp of the Syrian army that has surrounded the city. They have no food. They have no health. They have no opportunity to improve their situation. But here is where God starts the resolution and fulfillment of his promise to deliver the city. But why is it ironic? Why is this an irony, using these least likely of men? Well, you have to remember, the Syrian army, perhaps not by this time, but at least in the recent past, was led by a leper named Naaman, who was healed. So here was a Syrian army who was once led by a leper who was healed by the God of Israel. And now in this story, God turns us to lepers in Israel who evidently God did not see fit to heal. At least we don't know that he did, even after the besiegement was lifted. But the actions of these four lepers indicate a realistic picture of what the human experience is like. This is one of the things about scripture that is so important for us to understand. Not every moment or every detail is so impossibly uh, unrealistic for us to understand. It gives us the regular details of how people would react in such situations. So here are these four lepers. They sit around and they say to themselves, we're at the end. They know they're, they're, they're starving to death. They say, if we go into the city, we're going to die. If we stay here, we're going to die. 
The only other option we have is to go into the Syrian camp hoping that they'll have mercy on us and spare our lives. But if they kill us, we were going to die anyway. So this is their only hope. This is the logical decision-making of someone in a hopeless estate. If there's even a glimmer of hope, the last thing that might save them, they're willing even to risk their lives for this salvation. And so here is the story, the realism of their actions. They go to this camp and they find it abandoned. And so you would think, with great joy, they would run back to the city and tell everybody what is going on. But remember their situation. They're starving to death. They found food. They found all kinds of items of precious nature, garments and silver and gold and all these things. And so the first thing they do is they eat. I have to say, that would probably be the first thing we all would do, too. Here's some food. We're starving to death. Let's eat it. And so they do. And then they start thinking about their future and the treasure that is all around them. And the first thing they do, thinking not of all of the people of Israel or thinking of the bigger picture, they're thinking of their own life and their own situation in the here and now, like so many of us do on an everyday basis, they begin to take the supplies and go and hide them. Perhaps they're thinking of the future. Perhaps they're thinking of their opportunity to plunder uh, this army. And perhaps even here, they don't understand that the entire camp has been abandoned. Or perhaps that there might be others who don't know that the situation has happened yet. But they come to their senses. This realism in their actions then leads to an understanding that this is a momentous event. The light dawns on them. Now their stomach is full. They've had their... their uh, desires and appetites satisfied, so to speak. And they say to one another in verse 9, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us, whether they mean by God or by the king, we don't know. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they do. They go to the gates of the city. They go back from where they started at the gates outside the city. Remember, they can't go in because they're lepers. They can't enter the presence of the king or the other Israelite people because of their uncleanness in their disease according to the law of God. So they tell the gatekeepers about the situation. So here's the point of this particular section, verses 3 through 10. It's right sandwiched in the middle. God intervened with an oral delusion. This Syrian army was winning the battle. They had been there probably for some time. We don't know how long, but it took sometimes weeks or months to starve somebody out, sometimes even years around a big city that's fortified. They'd been camped there for a long time. They were winning the battle. The people in Israel were starving to death. And that morning, after God promised from Elisha, tomorrow I will deliver the people with all the details that were given, God sent a delusion to them. We don't know whether it was audible to everybody in the world or whether it was something that was miraculous just in the ears of the army. Whatever the situation, they heard what they thought sounded like a great army from the north and from the south. 
from the Hittites of Canaan and from the Egyptians on both sides. And so they ran out the side towards the Jordan River. God supernaturally intervened with a miraculous event. And then God did something that was even more impressive is God used the least likely and the lowest and the outcasts as evangelists to tell the good news to the city. You know, we use that term sometimes. In fact, this is a great line for a novel. Humanly speaking, things look hopeless. We say that the American prospects for winning the Revolutionary War against the British were rather desperate and hopeless. We say that underdogs who are behind in the last seconds of a ball game are humanly in desperate straits to get a victory. We say that a friend of ours with stage four cancer where no longer can treatments medically intervening on their behalf save them. And we say that this patient to beat the odds, humanly speaking, it's not possible. But this is where we as believers understand that the scriptures tell us that God at times will supernaturally intervene on behalf of his people. And isn't this the point of the whole scriptures to begin with? Just as here, the people of Samaria, humanly speaking, had no hope for deliverance or salvation, so you and I left to the bondage of our own sin, are hopeless, desperate people, humanly speaking, who have no hope to be saved from the ravages of the wages of sin, which is death and eternal punishment. But God will supernaturally intervene on behalf of his people, just as he did in this day, giving a sense to the Syrians that they're Uh, There was a great army coming and they fled for their lives even to the point of leaving their horses of all things and their donkeys and all those things. So it takes supernatural intervention and Jesus himself describes this. You must be born again. You can't do it yourself. You can't trust in man. You can't save yourself. No one else can save you. Only God's supernatural act of convicting our hearts of sin causing us to be born again from death to our sins to life in Christ, can we be saved? God's supernatural intervention can save his people, even despite the unbelief of the leaders of God's people. Here the lepers have come into the city, or come to the gates of the city and given the good news to the gatekeepers. In turn, the gatekeepers have gone off to the king's house and proclaimed the good news here in the twilight or the night by this point. Kind of an interesting take here. Remember, Elisha gave these words during the day. At twilight here in the story, they find the camp empty because at twilight, as the lepers are entering the camp, the people of the Syrian army have left the camp about the same time. And here it is in the night now. They've come to the gatekeepers and told them the good news. They take it to the king. And King Jehoram here, that's the king in those days, what did he do? Of course, he said, great news. I knew that God's word would be kept, and that this morning would be a new day. No. 
he immediately reverted back to what he thought a king should do or be in those days, and he was quick to consider military strategy. He said, surely this is a ruse. Here are the words that he says. The king says this. He says, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. This is verse 12. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. Again, from a human perspective, this is wisdom. After all, he could be referring back to even Israel's history back in the days of Joshua when their enemy at one time hid themselves so that when the people came out of the city, then the army got in front and behind them and got entrance into the city to win the battle, at least of that day. Jehoram, in that sense, is wise, quick to consider military strategy and the deception of the enemy, but his refusal was this. The context here is so important, isn't it? He refused to believe God's word of yesterday. Just think, just hours before, Elisha had said, tomorrow things will be different. He's given the good news from the gates of Jerusalem, from even the least likely of sources. Interesting that there were four, not just two or three to provide witnesses, but four. But of course, as outcasts under the law, they would not be considered reputable in the eyes of the king or others. And yet in all of these things, he's forgotten what Elisha said in the last few hours, or rather more likely, he's refused to believe the word of God. And like a good king, what does he do? Nothing. He apparently has indecision or inaction. He's not the one who makes a suggestion of what takes place next. In fact, one of the commentary writers I enjoy reading on this passage said that it's really amazing that God uses lepers and unnamed servants as the key characters in the salvation of God's people. There is one servant, we don't know his name, We don't know what position he might hold, whether he was low or high in the house. And he says this. He says in verse 13, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. This unnamed servant says there's no risk here. We're all dying anyway. Some people have died in the city already. If we stay here... We're going to, you know, doesn't this sound just like what the leper's conversation was? It's the realism of the day. If they do nothing, they're going to die. If they do something, they might die. But if they do something, they might possibly somehow survive. And this apparent indecision here or inaction of the king is, re, is, is replaced by the advice of this particular unnamed servant, even in the reminder of this perilous situation. If they don't do something, they're going to die. So they send out these horsemen. It's interesting, the words here, it says, he suggested they send out five horsemen. It says here they took two horsemen. Really, the words are two chariots. They've taken two chariots of horses out, so that's probably at least four horsemen. And they go out, and they go out, and the report is verified. In fact, not only this, they, the, the chariots even 
try to find where the Syrians have gone, and they go off towards the Jordan River about 15 miles away and come back. So this is probably a few hours that they're taking the time to verify what has taken place. Despite the unbelief of the king of Israel, God had made a great deliverance. You know, we saw this morning in this morning's message the text about Herod Antipas, the unbelieving tetrarch of Galilee. God's miraculous salvation comes and marches on even if the influential people in our lives refuse to believe it. God's grace comes to the remnant. Even though the king may not have been saved eternally, yet at this moment in time God was delivering his people because he said he would. To the unnamed hopeless, the desperate outcasts who encounter God's gracious salvation, even almost accidentally, God brings joy unbounding for the desperate with hope and salvation in the mercy of an all-powerful God. Doesn't that sound just like salvation from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation? God works despite the fact that many people will not believe. But God's word, it stands, even in the smallest details. The last few verses of this text remind us of God's word. The people go out. The news gets out. The report has been verified. The Syrians are gone. There's all this plunder available. And so they, in a massive horde, they're starving to death. Their desperation is to the point that they can hardly contain themselves. And they even go to the gate in a stampede such that the one who was assigned at the gate was trampled to death. But it says, verse 16, Then the people went out and plundered the camp. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Here's this story with all its macabre details and all its wonderful salvation, the miraculous intervention of God on behalf of the people. And here we get this price posting. A sea of fine flour and two seahs of barley. Why? Regarding the, small, the, the cost or price of provisions for fine flour, wheat flour, and barley. It's a reminder that even the smallest details of the word of God will stand and be fulfilled. But not only that, it's repeated to us, not just in verse 16, according to the word of the Lord, but verse 17, about the people trampling this man. This man was the captain or the aide-de-camp, we might say, in today's language, of the king. The, in fact, the word here suggests he's the third, perhaps the third most important man in the kingdom. And he had doubted the words of the prophet Elisha to the point that he said, even if God were to open windows in heaven, how could this be? And Elisha had said, you will see it, but you will not eat of it. And so it was. He was assigned by the king to the gate, probably unknowingly, of how this fulfillment would take place. He was able to see the camp from a distance as the people came massively hoarding through this gate. And yet, he died right there, trampled to death. Even the smallest details regarding this unbelieving officer, it says in verse 17, again, the people trampled in the gate so that he died as the man of God had said. 
Verse 16, it said, according to the word of the Lord. Verse 17, it says, as the man of God had said. Verse 18 reminds us, kind of a summary here. For when the man of God has said to the king, two seas of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a sea of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria. In other words, verse 18 says, these were the words of God's prophet. Regarding the word of Elisha the prophet, even the smallest details, because it's the word of God, it will stand. The positive words of deliverance and the negative words of judgment. Isn't this what the scripture really is? A warning. There is a day coming when God's people will be saved. But if you're not one of God's people, you will be judged. This will come true just as the story did it will come true many years ago a baseball player by the name of Babe Ruth was rumored to have called a shot that means he was rumored to have predicted he was going to hit a home run in that day's ball game of course there's details that tell us some people think he really did call it and some people think he really didn't call it who knows we don't know But imagine if he had not only called the shot, but he had named the pitcher, gave the pitch count upon which he would hit the home run, and gave the distance of how far the ball would go. This is what God does in the Bible. He says, not only am I going to deliver you the next day, but here's the cost of supplies, and here is one person that's not going to enjoy the fruit. God's word stands. Things like this, not a bone of Jesus' body will be broken, and it wasn't. The details Jesus told his disciples to look for in celebrating the Passover, you will find all these details in the city when you're looking and searching and preparing for the upper room. They all took place. The list goes on. God's details stand. The scriptures tell us the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And it tells us also, Jesus, his own words, not a jot or a tittle until the end will pass away. The promises of God, we're told, have their yes and amen in Jesus. And God's plan of salvation for his people prophesied throughout all the law and the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament, through the gospels of the New Testament and the letters and epistles to God's people. God's plan of salvation will come to pass. God's word stands. Do you trust that in your own life? I hope so. That's our only hope for a desperate, sinful people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word stands. We thank you for this story, not the details of it, the suffering of the people, the very troubling depravity of man, but Lord, your supernatural grace, your deliverance, even to the minutest detail that your word and your promise is true. Help us to trust, help our unbelief, that we might trust your word, for it shall stand in Jesus' name.